90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Doing pretty good. How about yourself? I can't complain. It's another not too bad weekend, though I was just up in Minnesota. It was actually pretty nice there as well and getting to do some high pressure, high temperature rock deformation work. Oh, well, I know that's your first love. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anything that's high pressure or any kind of temperature extreme, right? Did you have lasers and cameras? That's your other loves? <laughs> not yet. That's part of what we're going to add to this rig though, right? It's going oh. in and doing some upgrading, uh, upgrading some control systems. It was always fun to go in and work on some of these like late 80s, early 90s control systems that are actually really <laughs> cleverly designed. <laughs> yeah. Um, ancient hardware. I'm familiar with that. Yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, and lots also- and lots of notes. Uh, um, you know, probably 300 pages of handwritten notes <gasps> on modifications oh, of the SI See, virus. that's... Uh, that's impressive. Like ours doesn't have any notes at all for our modifications. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, hey, remember when we did that thing? Yeah, back in 2000. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's great. I've been spending a lot of time in the lab this week as well. Everything's working fine, John. <laughs> well, that's that's good. That means you haven't had to call me this week. Yes, that's exactly right. Um, I haven't had to call you until now, right? <laughs> It's true. And I'm really excited because we're going to get to talk about uh, some hardware, though, not really lab hardware this week. Uh, No, man, this is the ultimate in um, experimental setups. And it does involve high speed cameras and all the fun things. And so this week, we're really excited to be talking to Dr. Machi Obrick, Dr. Kate Allstadt, and Dr. Thomas Rapstein. And we're going to be talking about the USGS's experimental debris flume that's up in the Pacific Northwest. And it monitors, conducts experiments in this huge natural laboratory. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. Hey. Hello. Good to be here. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. So we'll just kind of go around the table here. And uh, Thomas, we'll start with you. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into geosciences and where you're at now? Oh, sure. Oh, man. It's a really long story, um, but no, we won't go too far back, I guess. So I, I grew up on a farm and I really enjoyed being outside and working with equipment and fixing problems and just being out in fields and stuff. And uh, when I got into college, I was a physics major and I wasn't really outside much. <laughs> so I switched over to geophysics and really when I fell in love with it was at field camp at Mines and uh, was able to go out to Pagosa Springs and look at some geothermal systems. And I think that's, that's when I really started to really enjoy being in geophysics. And so stayed at Mines for a really long time. <laughs> I did my undergrad there, master's and a PhD. So did the full Grand Prix, as they say. <laughs> and um, yeah, just always had a I just loved doing the data acquisition side of things. And so I was fortunate enough to work with Kate and Machi on on some really cool work at the Flume with high-speed cameras and measuring ground deformation. And um, yeah, that's that's kind of the, that's the lowdown on how I, how I got into all this. So right now I'm in Houston, Texas and um, not working for the USGS anymore, but uh, still doing geophysics, so. Awesome. Uh, Kate, what about you? How did you get into geoscience? What's some of your background? Uh, well, it's a pretty non-linear story, but um, <laughs> but yeah, I grew up. I was always interested in the earth sciences. I had some really great teachers in high school, um, and my parents took us on all sorts of trips out west to the national parks, and so I just kind of always had a affinity for the outdoors and nature and geology and the story behind you know, all the beautiful places in our country, but I actually started undergrad as an architecture major. Um, and it's kind of a, almost a random walk to how I got to where I am now, but <laughs> I, uh, I realized I didn't want to do architecture and I happened to be taking a really interesting class on environmental studies at the time. And so I decided to switch my major to, um, 
environmental geology as an undergrad. Um, and then it was just kind of a sequence of opportunities that came up that were interesting to me for, um, you know, trips and projects and um, grad school. And I really kind of leaned towards natural hazards because it's so applicable to humans. Um, and the time scales are, you know, human time scales in many cases. Um, and so that's kind of how I drifted towards natural hazards. Um, so, so yeah, I did my um, grad school. I did a, a master's program in um, in France and Italy, and we that's kind of how I got interested in working on landslide seismology problems because I'm actually a seismologist, but I, I work on landslides and debris flows a fair amount. Um, and then I did my PhD at University of Washington uh, in Seattle, and um, kind of my my degree was in like unusual seismic events. Um, and I worked for the seismic network there. And so we'd get weird events that we'd record on the volcanoes or just on the general network. And it was just really fun kind of trying to figure out what the signals were and you know, studying them and finding out how they're relevant. Um, and then it turns out that you can actually use seismic techniques um, for a lot of natural hazard problems like detecting landslides, detecting debris flows, tracking them, uh, characterizing them. and but the science is pretty new, like it's a sort of new field and there's just a lot of interesting fundamental research that's still left to be done. Um, and so that's kind of how I got to, to where I am. It's, it, you know, it's just a part of what I work on, but it's something that I find really interesting because it's so, so new and then it also has these really practical uh, purposes. Awesome. And Machi, we're told that you're the, the flume master here. So uh, what can you tell us about your path in geosciences? All right. Yeah, I am the full guy. Um, I am a research hydrologist with UHGS and Cascades Volcano Observatory. And I'm currently in charge of operations and along with two other colleagues, uh, scientific direction of the flume or large scale experimental debris flow flume facility. Well, that's a handful <laughs> to say. Uh, I should have probably practiced that. <laughs> So my, my intro to geoscience was uh, also non-linear, non-traditional. I moved to Chicago in my teens from across the pond. And soon after I finished my high school, I went to college, got an associate degree. But I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do. So I took a gap year, which turned into more like six years. Um, you know, I traveled, had random jobs. And once I was ready, I went back to school and I wanted to get a PhD in theoretical astrophysics of all the <laughs> subjects. I know. <laughs> so I started taking, you know, uh, those pre-calc course, pre-calc calculus, you know, physics at night. And after a year or so, I quickly realized that I'm going to spend the rest of my life in front of a monitor. And I love to travel. I love to be outdoors. So I quickly changed my majors. And I went with uh, Earth and Environmental Science. I got a bachelor's degree in Earth and Environmental Science. And towards the end of my bachelor's, my undergrad advisor took me to Antarctica as a field assistant. So I fell in love with Antarctica. I was like, I need to get a PhD in cryoscience. Like, this is what I'm doing. Uh, so I started applying to different schools. And when I asked for a little recommendation from my undergrad advisor, he basically gave me an offer I couldn't refuse. He gave me a full RA trip for the duration of my program, my PhD program. And I got to go to Antarctica everywhere. So I obviously stayed. Uh, so I got a PhD in hydroclimatology, or more specifically, I, I study perennially ice cover lakes and their response to climate change. So that's how I got into geoscience. The How I got into UHG is also a little bit different, um, non-linear, non I would say, non-traditional. Um, so I moved for a postdoc to Portland State in Portland, Oregon. And my postdoc was still about Antarctica, but it was about geomorphology. Uh, we flown LIDAR, did uh, ground penetrating radar measurements. Um, so my mind was focusing on geomorphology, you know, changes in uh, dune formation, subsidence, and living in Pacific Northwest, when you have these debris flows, landslides happening all the time, I found them absolutely fascinating. And as a matter of fact, a month after moving here to Portland, Oregon, there was also a landslide, which was pretty devastating. So that was on the very top of my mind. And um, right towards 
the end of my postdoc, there was an opening for the flu guy, and obviously yeah. I applied. <laughs> and here I am. Nice. And now you're the czar. <laughs> um, before we talk about the flume, well, number one, Thomas, I've never heard it called the Grand Prix, but I also did the Grand Prix here at the University of Oklahoma, <laughs> and I will say that from now on. <laughs> I I don't think anybody but me has ever called it that. Well, we're going <laughs> to make it a thing now. Yeah, let's do it. It sounds great. <laughs> it's a thing. Sweet. Um, but I wanted to follow up with uh, Kate real quick because um, I'm – the minority geologist in the room, clearly. Um, but you're there at the USGS in Golden, and you said that landslide seismology was kind of a new field, but seismology isn't a new field. Like, why, what makes this like a new part of seismology? Does it have to do with being able to detect them or just interest or what? Uh, it's kind of all of the above. The, the biggest factor is that... Um, the seismology community moved towards open data. And so now we have like larger and larger seismic networks that are always recording. Um, and that data is continuous, which is also sort of new in the past few decades. Um, and it's openly available. And so we're starting to capture all these events that we didn't, we didn't used to actually save, you know, like they were always generating seismic waves, but they just weren't saved because the target was earthquakes. Um, right. And so it's kind of like serendipity um, has, you know, the serendipity of just detecting these events and seeing them in the data and then starting to look at them. And um, that's kind of been a big factor in making this field kind of expand. I mean, it, one of the oldest papers was actually on the big landslide that happened at the beginning of the 1980 Mount St. Helens eruption. That's like one of the first papers. So it's, you know, and traditional seismology goes back to like the early 1900s, or you could even argue it goes back like many, like a thousand years or so. Right. Um, but yeah, the landslide seismology, it just wasn't really the target until recently. And we didn't have a lot of data. And, and now because of, because of this open data paradigm shift that the community made and just improvements in, you know, the ability to store data, um, that allows us to save continuous data from, you know, I, we can go back and look, you know, 10 years ago at Mount Rainier and see what happened 10 years ago, you know? So, um, so there's really a lot of factors. Um, there's also a lot more interest in using um, the seismic signals for practical purposes in recent years as well. Okay. That makes sense. Um, my, student was just commenting the other day about how, you know, he's got this micro SD card that's like 256 gigs or something. <laughs> so yeah, um, we were just discussing how cheap data storage is. So that makes yeah. a lot more sense. For sure. It's definitely been a paradigm shift. And like you said, having all this open data is a totally uh, new concept in a lot of fields still, surprisingly. Uh, and I think in experimental work, especially experimentalists, we all know how, how much you have to work on getting your experiment to, to work and everybody's tended to hold that uh, really close. And with seismic networks, there's so much work to, to get them deployed. So I, I guess my next question is when somebody says a flume, I generally think of a little tabletop acrylic box <laughs> that you look at dunes or anti-dunes in. Uh, what What is this large experimental flume? What's this facility like and uh, how big is it? Um, so if I can take this, this is a flume is a, an extremely fascinating place. It's a, it's a concrete structure that's about 95 meters long, two meters wide and about 1.2 meters high. And it's perched on a slope at 31 degrees angle. And at the bottom of it, there's a big runoff head where you can study the deposits of the debris, of debris flows. And it's located in the middle of central Oregon at the H.J. Andrews Experimental Forest. And I mean, we're talking remote, like there's no cell phone connection remote. But likely for us, it's on the H.J. Andrews compound. And what they do, they study a lot, of a lot of ecology and they have housing for the scientists and they let us rent them. We can do short-term housing rentals which is super convenient when you work at the flume. Um, but this thing is huge. We have several towers where we hang cameras from to observe uh, whatever we're trying to observe. 
Um, yeah, that's that's a yeah. huge setup, yeah. <laughs> ninety meters long. I I can't imagine how long does it take to prepare an experiment to run on the flume versus you know in the lab with the flume you might be able to do a couple runs a day. Does it take days, weeks? How long does it take to set up an experiment at the flume? Oh boy, <laughs> <laughs> it <laughs> it takes months. Oh. It's a, First of all, to run to run an experiment, you need roughly eight to ten people, and I, I'm the only full time flume person. Everybody else is just an ad hoc comes from the variety of places. But you need uh, electric technicians, uh, you need instrumentation people, you need computer scientists to for data acquisition. You need a tractor driver. We do basically drive a backhoe. It's so flume is like a it's like a big sandbox for adults. <laughs> It's, it's kind of like that. <laughs> yeah, I always call it uh, like a. It's like a really weird summer camp because <laughs> it's yeah, you know, yes. different people each year. I've only participated a few years, but it's like different people and like really like big nerds about specific things and hanging out and doing experiments and. But it's just like a really weird theme for a summer camp. <laughs> <laughs> um. <laughs> Well, it kind of is. So it, it like usually takes us. It usually takes us about a, a week or so to set up instrumentation before everybody else comes in when we run the experiments, and we're capable of running maybe one experiment a day, like maybe three in a week, and that's a lot of work because we were talking about like ten cubic meters of sediment. That at the end of the day we have to shovel it, so everybody becomes a. <laughs> A shovel expert. <laughs> I mean, I shouldn't be issuing certificates. <laughs> <Shovel>. <laughs> it's like a, it's like a workout program as well as a <laughs> right. your science. Um, so we can link a picture of. There is an article in EOS, which is what you know turned us on to talking to you guys. Um, and I was going to wait, but since we brought up summer camp. Has anyone ever slid down this thing? Because it just looks like a really fun slide. <laughs> I think it would hurt. <laughs> it's, got a, it's got bumps on it. It wouldn't be very comfortable. Uh, that's But maybe, I don't know. Do you know of any uh, cases like that? <laughs> maybe, maybe this isn't the place. No, I mean, this is one of those situations of... Yeah, this like it's one of those hold my beer situations. Wait till it snows. That's what I was. There are definitely there are races up the stairs for sure. We That's have a lot uh, of stairs. <laughs> yeah, I don't. Do you know how many it is? <laughs> I I don't know how many, but we have like. Oh boy, I wish. Like a records that we keep. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Excellent. But we'll be looking for an update on the number of steps so we can put that up with the, the leaderboard on the podcast uh, yeah. notes here. Mm -hmm. I'm really yes. excited about bringing a mountain bike to the summer camp. That's all I'm going <laughs> to So this flume has been there for quite a while, right? Machi, you said you just took over not very long ago, but it's been sitting uh, there waiting, right? <laughs> Yeah, it's been. It was built in 1991, and uh, I, I have to mention the mastermind behind it, Richard Iverson, who recently retired. Um, so he was the mastermind behind building it. Uh, the construction began in 91, and they ran the first experiments in uh, 1992. And the flu has ever. I mean, it has evolved since. The, one of the first experiments they did was on a smooth surface, and the debris flows kind of they kind of stopped. They didn't go too far, and Kate mentioned that the, the floor of the flume is covered with bumps, and they put these tiles on the flume. I mean, if you 90 feet long versus, across two meters, and you're putting bumps across the whole length of it, it's it's a big endeavor, but it changed the experiments. The, they, what they realize is the bumpiness, the agitation of the grains, that's what helps the uh, debris flows to go. Wow, so a, a smooth surface that a brief didn't go very far, but when you put the bumps on it, actually would flow further. That's uh, that, that's very counterintuitive, and sounds like it's going to be pretty important to the in itself as a contribution to landslide mechanics. Uh, what are some of the things other than say texture that you're trying to study with these experiments at the Flume? Well, so 
Zoom essentially, um, so let me take a step back. Uh, so st study of debris, fall, debris flows is super challenging because you know if you study them in situ, we go on the mountain, put the instruments in, you're hoping for debris flow to happen, but you might be waiting, you know, a year or two, and if you're a grad student, that will never happen, or you never graduate. <laughs> uh, and, and they are pretty destructive, you know, you don't want to be in that path of it. So studying them in situ is challenging. I mean, there have been studies done, people have saturated a, a, a hill and hope for the best, and they did initiate the debris flow. Um, but having this setup, you can safely study the mechanics of it. And um, so the flume has been used for basically three sets of experiments. I would classify them as three sets. Um, one is called gate release, uh, which at the top of the flume, we have a hopper where we can load up, let's say, up to 10 cubic meters of sediment. We saturate it, we open the gate, and this allows us to study the mechanics of the debris flow. We can do natural experiments where we put a prism of sediment behind the retaining wall that's still at the 31 degree angle and we saturate it again and until it fails. And it's actually really fascinating to watch a bunch of dirt all of a sudden fails and starts moving on its own simply because it's full of water. And then I would classify the third set of experiments as other, uh, you know, we can do dam, dam bridge experiments or tsunami wave generation and such. Um, but I forgot what the question is. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, what are some of the fundamental topics that you're trying to tackle with these experiments? What are some of the, the fundamental questions that you're trying to answer about debris flows and landslides? Well, so Richard Iverson, um, he was prolific in science and ultimately he was uh, trying to understand how debris flows, mechanics of debris flows. And uh, these, day, these days, most of it is used to validate models uh, that will hopefully help or prevent and predict uh, these phenomena. Um, and of course, uh, we've been working with Kate and Thomas about uh, on monitoring these events as well and using different instrumentation, uh, ideally of the shelf instrumentation, how can we monitor these events cheaply? I mean, there's possibilities of, there's so many possibilities of it. Like I have, my, my personal interest is in cryosphere, so I, I kind of want to study icy flows, um, which I, I'm assuming they will they will keep on happening. With retreating glaciers, you have so much more buried ice on the forefront of glaciers, and this becomes a source for debris flows. And but we don't know much about uh, mechanics of it. How how are these lumps of sediment full of ice behaving? Um, are they self lubricating? I mean, if you're moving. Bunch of, bunch of sediment with ice inside, you technically have a source of water inside of the debris flow itself. Um, so there are many questions that we're trying to answer at the end of the day. I imagine that since the first experiments in 1991, the way you answer the questions has changed a lot in terms of instrumentation, I'm guessing. Uh, yes, <laughs> um, it's been, <laughs> well, so I inherited, uh, I inherited the flume with all the instrumentations in it. And, you know, we have a variety of the default instruments, such as lasers for uh, measuring depth flow. We have pore pressure sensors. Uh, we have uh, shear and normal stress sensors. Um, and, and then, you know, we bring everything else that we need. Like we, we, we brought LiDAR one day, uh, 4K cameras, the work that Thomas has been working with, um, you know, seismic sensors. Um, so we bring a variety of, basically, we, we we're testing. We're testing a lot of instruments uh, to see if we can detect this uh, in a cheap way. You know, monitoring these uh, events is, can be expensive. So having off-the-shelf equipment uh, that we can can be easily tested the flume is is pretty brilliant. It seems like a really awesome test bed because it's sort of in that in between you know the laboratory and the the full scale where we can't really control the tests quite so much. And and Kate, you mentioned doing a lot of work on non traditional seismic sources, so I was really curious when you're looking at this. 
what are they like? Are they really emergent and broadband, but high frequency or narrow band? What's, what's a debris flow look like seismically? Well, so the debris flows at the flume and, and most debris flows, um, they have, they are emergent, like you said, um, and they tend to have a lot of high frequency energy, not so much low frequency energy. And by high, I mean above one hertz. Um, and they tend to last a while, but it really depends on where you're measuring from. Um, so like at the flume, the seismometers are all, they're pretty close because it's a small event and um, you can't see the signal very well the further away you go. So we basically see the whole event on all the seismometers, but the amplitude varies depending on how close like the action is. Um, you know, like the front of the flow is a lot louder than the tail of it because it's more agitated and more energetic. Um, and so you'll see variations on the different stations depending on how close they are to the different components of the flow. Um, in a natural setting, um, for really big debris flows, you also get um, low frequency energy that's generated kind of from the bulk movements of the material, like you know a big packet of movement uh, accelerating around a curve or over a bump or um, these kind of large scale movements, they tend to generate lower frequency energy. Um, but we don't get that at the flume, but we did, we have done some experiments to try to understand that component better. It's just everything's scaled down at the flume. So the frequencies are higher, if, if that makes sense. Um, and then if we talk about natural debris flows, a lot of them start as landslides and Landslides tend to be more energetic because they're on steeper slopes and um, they're just, you know, moving faster. And um, so the landslide signals often precede the debris flow signals as well. And so they're very similar in character, but more compact in time generally and in higher energy. Okay. So when you're looking at these data, are you collecting in the... In the world, we would have, say, a network of three-component broadbands. What are you using at the flume to do this, since you've got higher frequency and probably a much denser array? Yeah, so we used, um, so we did two years of seismic experiments. Um, the first year, we actually used some broadbands, and those are pretty interesting because you can use them to get ground tilt, and we're working on figuring out if we can use the tilt of the ground to measure how massive the flow is. Um, so we did use a few broadbands, but mostly we use geophones. Um, and so they're much cheaper. Uh, we have some three components, some one component. And they record, um, they have what's called a corner frequency of usually around five hertz. Um, and so they can record lower frequencies, but they're much better at recording five hertz and higher. Um, and then, the, so that was the first year, it was kind of hybrid. The second year, we actually we're able to use um, nodal seismometers, which are these, they're sort of a new thing that's changing research in seismology a fair bit because they're self-contained and they're fairly portable. Um, and it's just like a three channel thing that you can just stick in the ground and leave for 30 days. Uh, we didn't leave it for 30 days at the flip because we didn't need to, but um, so we were able to have many more sensors and we, arranged them like every couple of meters along the flume so we could look at changes in as the flow progressed down the flume in high detail. We also arranged them in arrays to test different methods for tracking um, moving sources. And um, uh, yeah, so they, they've been really great as well. And, and they're, they're a cheaper kind of instrument. Um, some of you might've heard about them. Some people are doing experiments with like a thousand of these nodes um, so they're a pretty neat development in, in seismology recently. So Thomas in the beginning had talked about, he got interested in geophysics cause he got to do geophysics field camp and rerun that as well here at OU. Nice. And, uh, I'm going to say that the nodes make me sad because the lack of making students lug cables everywhere. Cables and car batteries. Exactly. Fundamental cornerstones of geophysics. I mean, they're, they're kind of heavy, so that's okay. But yeah, the, the lack of the cabling, I mean, I mean, my hands like cringe thinking about all those cuts, uncapping those <laughs> dumb things. So 
<laughs> yes, they're cool, but it's kind of sad. <laughs> and so, Thomas, you worked on some of the seismology at the Flume as well, correct? Right. Yeah. My the work that I helped out with was mainly pertained to the high speed camera data. So, using all these great videos of the failure to recover ground information, essentially making a 3D model of the surface of the debris flow um, using video cameras and then seeing how it deformed, how fast it was moving, and then using that to try to gain insight on things like how much the sediment was dilating um, before failure and during. So it's not quite using seismometers, but it definitely would, uh, using cameras can help uh, Kate get a better idea of hopefully at least what her, what the source is, <laughs> how fast, is, yeah, how fast it's moving, yeah, like, all this good stuff. Yeah. The work that Thomas did with us um, was key for kind of characterizing where the entire distribution of the flow is at each moment in time, because the existing instrumentation just measures at a three to, or I guess there's four profiles where you get the flow depth um, and then we don't have like the entire distribution of where material is at each moment in time. So the work that Thomas did, um, he, he did a couple of different um, projects with us. And so it's really key for supporting the seismic work so that we can figure out if these like array tracking methods are actually working and what part of the flow are they actually tracking and, and so on. So, so yeah, sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to Oh, no, make it fine. clear how important the, the work you did was for well thanks for i'm glad i'm glad it's it's been useful <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah so i guess there's really in terms of what i helped out with there's really two types of experiments one was the gate release where there was sort of this wet mass that the gate opened and just unleashed the debris flow down the flume and the other one was more of a somewhat static piece of sediment where water was being infiltrating the sediment, it sort of naturally failed. And so those were kind of the two projects that I was able to work on. And in the, the gate release one, I had a lot of fun working on that because uh, we had some LIDAR data, just repeat LIDAR scanning up and down the axis of this flume. And we get a point cloud like 30 times a second about from this LIDAR data. And then we had cameras too, and we were trying to see how the debris flow evolves all along the axis of flow at each moment in time. And so that was really fulfilling to, to get that um, paper written and stuff. And the, the other one where was more the natural release where the water was sorting, sort of infiltrating the sediment at the top of the flume until it got so weak that it failed. Um, that was a more detailed, like local mini cameras viewing the surface and then just cranking away with some computer vision techniques to recover how much it moved up and down and to the side as it was failing. Um, so yeah, that's, that's really LiDAR data, high speed cameras. That's, that's my jam. I love it. So yeah. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. And <laughs> so how high John. speed is high speed? Well, um, as high as you can afford, I think. Uh, <laughs> right. The, so there's, there's usually a trade-off when you're using cameras to, view the world, there's usually a, there's usually a trade-off between resolution and frame rate because you have sort of a finite bandwidth that you can write. So the 4K videos, yeah, you got 4K, but you can't record as high of a frame rate without having considerably better lighting. So you can, there's this trade-off between how big your pixels are on the surface of the debris flow or the failing sediment versus how sort of densely you're sampling in time. So if you allow yourself to have lower resolution, you can have extremely high um, frame rates. And in fact, before I left, we were looking into a pretty unique type of camera called a line scan camera. And it can reach, oh man, don't quote me on this, but it can reach uh, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of frames a second. Um, and they use these cameras traditionally in like manufacturing scenarios, like to QC pieces of hardware going along a conveyor belt. But we were wanting to shoot this. And it's just the reason it can handle such high frame rates is because 
as the name implies, it's a line scan camera. So instead of it having a square image sensor or rectangular image sensor, it's just one row of pixels. So you can achieve much higher repeat um, measurements of, you know, photons accumulating charge on those pixels. Um, so if, so if you really push the speed, you can get like overwhelmingly high frame rates, but you, again, you're only, your resolution sort of drops off. So I, I right. hope that work is going well, Kate. <laughs> oh, it's in Machik's office right now. Oh, nice. <laughs> so he'll have to say. Okay. Nice. It's going. Yeah. Let me know. Let me know how it's going. I'd really be interested to see, see how that's going. And they're not that expensive either compared to other, like, like some people use high-speed cameras to study explosives and those cameras can be extremely expensive, but the line scan cameras are actually pretty affordable. So, yeah. How many cameras are we talking about in terms of, so you kind of already <laughs> answered my question about like where they go along the different experiments, but yeah, how many do you have to set up and where? So if you think of, trying to use an image to recover like depth in a scene, you typically need at least two cameras. You know, it's mm -hmm. like our eyesight. You need, you need two eyes to have some sort of depth perception. So minimum is two usually, unless you have a LIDAR system or you put markers on the debris flow or something. Um, but the more, the better. It's just become sort of an engineering um, challenge to have a bunch of cameras synced. So uh, in the paper that we put together, I think we used three, but really as many as you can sync together <laughs> is, is, is the answer. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so usually, usually less than 10, I would say. Okay. But when they make movies, they actually use the same technique where they have many cameras viewing a scene and, uh, then they can rotate perspective and get these weird shots that you see in movies by sort of reconstructing and manipulating the perspective. And it's the, the codes that we, we put together and like sort of the computer vision stuff that we did is very similar to, to what happens in those movies. Oh, well, that's awesome to be able to put on your resume, right? <laughs> so if this yeah. geophysics thing doesn't work out. <laughs> oh, I'm, I don't know if I could... <laughs> Yeah, I'm not sure I'm going to Hollywood. But, yeah, I guess. Oh, that's that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, I do have another question too. Um, when you have the static sediment, and this is for everybody, um, when you have those static sediment where you have the natural failures, what kind of bedding is going on in terms of the time of failure? Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, it seems like that would be something that I would be involved in. <laughs> I don't. I don't recall betting on it. I mean, we are government workers, so. Okay. <laughs> but, but it is stressful because everyone's kind of, I mean, you know when you're getting close-ish, but um, I don't know, it can be, you know, an hour or two that when you're all standing there like, okay, it could be any second. Oh. <laughs> and everyone's just kind of gathered around. And especially the year that we did these with, um, like we had seismic sensors because we wanted to detect the initiation of the natural release. I had to keep yelling at people to stop moving. Oh, <laughs> my oh no. Because they can make yeah. seismic waves. You yeah. know, so everyone's like trying to stay as still as possible to not make seismic waves that might, like, if it started to fail, might get in the way of our signal. <laughs> so, so it could so. take up to an hour to fail, I guess, depending on. Oh, your it takes much longer. Yeah. But that's like <laughs> Super long. when you, like, they people get up at like i don't know really early in the morning to start it but like when it gets to a certain saturation level then you know you're close and that's when everyone starts kind of getting ready but then it can be like another hour or two sometimes before it actually goes and you can't have like cheering when it goes either right because <laughs> again you don't want to interfere with your seismic signal uh, cheering would be okay but stomping around or jumping okay. would not be okay all right no excessive celebrations gotcha <laughs> I, I would say with the video data you can definitely see everybody's surprised reaction when the failure occurs and it's pretty pretty great and i, th I think we should make a montage of everybody's yes. reaction to be honest in slow can you make yeah. a, a three 3d model of everyone's face as they're oh man i'd have to yeah well, actually that's a 
That would be a great challenge. <laughs> be a really good art project yeah. too. <laughs> yeah. So you, you know, you're talking about okay, we've got a source of water in here, and as it's flowing, you're generating uh, you know some pore pressures in the sediment. How closely is this related, or is it related to things like the critical taper wedge theory that you're looking at in more traditional sediment mechanics? <laughs> uh, I don't want to take that one. <laughs> Critical wedge theory. Whoa. Or I guess to, to to maybe rephrase it a little bit is what uh, what are you looking at in terms of pressure distributions in the flow and how that affects the flow? What's the well, what's the fundamental theory underpinning that in the field? Yeah. Uh, since I'm not familiar with landslide dynamics can, at all, I can talk very briefly and high level about this. So in, in terms of like the physics and my pretty basic understanding of the physics, it seems as though these flows sort of flirt with a line between continuum mechanics and fluid mechanics. So one thing that you, that we were doing is trying to recover, I briefly mentioned recovering how much the sediment dilated or contracted using the measurements of deformation from the cameras. And right. so so these, these models that uh, sort of give you an idea of what's dilating or contracting, which Richard Iverson developed, um, to be clear, uh, they, they rely on knowing things like basal pore pressure, the pore fluid density, and the thickness of the sediment column. And then if you can, if you can know these parameters, and I don't want to get into like equations or anything, it's and you know sort of their derivatives in space, then you can sort of make some justified inferences on what portion of the sediment is dilating or contracting. And so I don't know if that answers your question, but that's about as down in the weeds as I think I'd be willing to go. But it's 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 a question, right? Like it, did the right. did the top of the sediment towards the top of the upslope dilate first or did it contract first and then fail? Like that's a sort of a fundamental question. Okay, yeah, it sounds sort of like, like in the, the sediment mechanics I was thinking about, you know, like we talk about dilation hardening all the time of, you know, you're deforming the sediment pack and you start getting dilation and for, uh, pore pressures drop and so you get an increase in effective normal stress and then it suddenly becomes harder to push on the, mm -hmm. the, the package of sediment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, so. that's, that's the same here. I think yep. the, the difference in the debris flow, not, not the natural release itself, but when it becomes a debris flow is that the the grains have different sizes and they segregate and that affects how the flow moves um, and so you get basically larger particles preferentially move towards the front and the top of the flow and they end up forming kind of this um, this unsaturated flow front that's much coarser um, that's kind of so that's the main front and then that's kind of being pushed along by a saturated tail um, and then it gets really interesting when you get down to like the runout pad at the flume when it starts to form levees because the coarser particles are getting pushed towards the side and the front and kind of making levees and then that channelizes the saturated flow um, so that it can go further than it would otherwise because it's not spreading out um, and you get all sorts of interesting behaviors that happen in the depositional zone as well. On the flume setup, how much of that area, you know, are you looking at? Like this, you're left with this big pile of sediment, but I mean, how far out from like the mouth of the flume does that sediment get to go? Like, do you have something that stops it at the end? Uh, well, so, well, we monitor using the cameras, we basically monitor everything from the run up head, uh, to the entire length of the flume. And we also have capability to put pore pressure sensors and other sensors in the runout pad oh, itself. Okay. Uh, and, and to be honest, we, we can also, I mean, the beauty of the flume, everything about it is custom made. And we kind of, historically, it requires an inventor because whatever question we're asking, we can modify the flume to our needs. If we need to drill a hole in the runout pad to put more instruments, we can certainly do that. That's awesome. How, how much of that, so Machi, this is for you. How much of that is your responsibility beforehand? Or is it something that, you know, you just work really closely with the researchers once they, once that team gets there? 
for setup? Well, well, the setup is mostly my responsibility. We obviously discuss it uh, with everybody mm-hmm. else beforehand. Uh, a lot of collaborators are United States, for example, Kate's in Colorado, I'm in Oregon. Um, so we have a lot of discussions what will be the best way to measure whatever phenomena we're trying to measure. And then um, I try to go about it and fabricate it and modify the form as, as, as required, as needed. So it mostly falls on me. Um, we, I do have support from my office. There's a variety of skillful people here that if I don't know something, uh, they will. So when you're looking down at you, you've got, you've got all your instrumentation in place, you've done your experiment, and before everybody gets their shovel certificate that they're a shovel expert, <laughs> and, you know, are you, do you take like a, a core of this and preserve it to look at the sediment structures that are created, or did, do you get the backhoe in there and dig a trench and some sedimentologists get in there and go crazy, or do you do anything with that? Uh, well, yes. Uh, I guess it depends on the experiment. Uh, sometimes we have sedimentologists, they want to study the runoff deposits and they come in and, you know, they'll, they'll take a small shovel to get cross-section of it. Uh, but usually what we do, I mean, always what we do is we take uh, a lot of aerial phot- photography of the runoff bed and we uh, reconstruct it in three dimensions. Um, it's just something that we've been doing that has been done for the past 20 years and I just continue doing that. I, I feel like it's important to continue preserve the continuation of the project. Um, so I guess it varies on the on the question uh, that we're trying to answer at the end of the day. Okay, great. That's something that, you know, Shannon, and, and actually just recently we've had a couple of shows on uh, sedimentary structures. And yep. <laughs> it seems like something that you would really enjoy. Yes, I know. Exactly. That's why I was like, how far does this run out pad go? Like, <laughs> like how, how much can we see? Like, I don't care what happens up at the top. Like, <laughs> Yeah, that's about 26 meters long, and oftentimes, oh. depending on the flow and the saturation, it can go can go to the end of it. Um, so yeah, so then we have, we actually, this is my, my predecessors installed two self-standing towers, I think they're about 40 meters long, and we stretched a rope between them, and we built this gizmo where we can remotely monitor a camera that moves along <laughs> the line and takes photography of all the deposits, so then we can do that three-dimensional 3D reconstruction, basically photogrammetry. That is awesome. Yeah, it's it's a lot of fun, but you know the problem with the flume is it's it's located out in the forest, and light is a big issue in these experiments. Mm. Or, or rain, it's the weather is pretty unpredictable, and we so we try to aim these experiments uh, for noon when the sun is above us, or late afternoon when there's a sh- full shadow casting over the flume. Yeah. So light's a big problem. I would never think of that. We don't have that kind of vegetation mm-hmm. cover here for that to ever <laughs> like cross my mind as being an issue. <laughs> well, also when the lighting is kind of wild, when you're thinking about using images to reconstruct 3D models, if if the light's reflecting differently off, say, a shiny surface, like think of a mirror and doing it with two cameras, it's like, you know, that that sort of feature in your in your images is hard to use to do photogrammetry. You don't want to, if you flew a few drones out over the ocean and tried to recover how the waves were moving, you'd have a hard time. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess with water and light reflecting, mm-hmm. that's even, yeah. even worse. The yeah. specular reflections are hard to handle. Right. So has there been any work with drones at the site? Uh, not really. Uh, it's a... Uh, U.S. Forest Service land, so we need to get a permission for that. Um, I don't think it's worth the efforts because, I mean, there are trees hanging around. I, I, I don't see this. I see this as a failure. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to crash that yeah. drone pretty quickly. <laughs> <laughs> Plus, the permitting would be oh, just too yeah. much hassle. Uh, I mean, we, we, can, we have a variety of cameras. I think that's, that's sufficient. Okay, great. And so being an instrumentation person... Uh, myself, I've got to ask the question of what if somebody said, here is a magic box that will measure anything that you want and you can have as many of them as you want. Money is no object. Well, what is the ideal flume? What what sensors do you have? Where are they at? And how is that going to help you? 
Oh, I got a wish list for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't want to dominate the wish list, but I'll, yeah. No, go go for it. I, oh, no, I want to hear yours first. I want to hear yours first. I got too excited. Well, I so got too excited. They, they actually... <laughs> <laughs> uh, successful smart rocks. They have been deployed. At Basically, it's a rock full of experiments. Uh, it knows where it is in space. But I don't think the data out of them came out to be successful, but don't quote me on that. Uh, I haven't seen the data, but I think that would be having small smart rocks within the debris itself would be kind of would be a pretty cool data set. Uh, also, lately, we've been doing these tsunami wave experiments and being able to uh, do a 3D model of the wave propagation would be nice. Uh, and once again, having being a wave and light, having issues with lighting is kind of challenging. Um, um, there are ways around it. We could dye the water, but since it's in the uh, forest service land, we can't actually dye the water. Right. It will be an environmental disaster. Hmm. All right. So smart rocks and some way to yeah. effectively do 3D wave propagation. Yes. And, and, oh, well, if, oh, 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 yeah. <laughs> let's hear it. Let's do it. <laughs> well, so we're also trying to study this interaction of a debris flow and water, how they interact. And there isn't much data on it because obviously you can't really monitor it in situ. But we can build a pond. We have built an uh, artificial pond and we have a debris hitting the water. And uh, successfully collecting data on the water, uh, there would be. That would be really interesting. We deployed a couple of GoPros, but as you know, the fisheye angle, it's not necessarily ideal. It gives us a better idea of what's right. happening, but quantifying it, um, how is the flow propagating? What, what is, um, yeah, it will be, that, that will be. Yeah. So you need like your own little buoy network. <laughs> so what are these, what are these smart rocks measure? We have the position oh, the and velocity rocks. or that yeah, sounds what is that? Great. They're just accelerometers, and they have, we mm -hmm. used them uh, in 2016, and one of them worked, but the others got shaken so hard that the batteries detached. Okay. <laughs> I, yeah, it was it sounds... pretty interesting, because they're, they're, they were kind of oddly shaped, so some of them just flew out in front and didn't provide oh. any useful information. Okay. Like, like they just shot out, <laughs> and then other ones were actually... They were kind of the size of the cobbles that are in the, the flow. Um, and some of them actually, they just rolled along the bottom. The one, the one that worked, most of the signal is it rolling along the bottom of the flow. And then it's kind of interesting because it gets overtaken by the, the flow front at some point. Um, so that's the only case I know where they worked, but I think usually they don't work and they break or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, I know. I know what John's going to be doing for the next two weeks now. <laughs> right? He's going to be making one or what? Exactly. Yeah. Nice. That's it awesome. is very important that they're shaped similarly to the other debris, though, because when they're really smooth or round or different, then they just don't act like the other debris. So, <laughs> they get so keep that in mind in your design process. Right. <laughs> so, so what density does John need to make these uh, smart rocks? What sort of density does he need to meet? Because I imagine that matters too, right? Not just the shape. I don't know. The same as the cobble. We can you send go. you a cobble if you want. Awesome. There we go. I mean, <laughs> Thomas, I'm surprised. As a geophysicist, we all know that there's only one density, and it's 2.6. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes that is, I forgot about that. Yeah. yeah. You just like friction is always 0. 0.6. There you go. Yep. Oh, my God. Uh, I'll I'll consult on this smart rock project. <laughs> yeah. So those sound like some really good uh, wish list items. Uh, you know, Thomas, what did uh, oh. what did we not hit that's on your list? Oh well, I guess the stuff that I would want is I have no idea how you would do it, but just like time varying measurements of just basal pore pressure everywhere in the sediment on the bot, you know, on the bottom. And uh, time varying hydro hydraulic permeability, shear viscosity, just like all these things are in these equations that are kind of 
we put estimates in there, but we sometimes know that they're time varying and we kind of want to know where they're distributed in space. And I think that'd be really sweet. I don't know how you would measure all that, but maybe, maybe you could do it for us, John. I don't know. But, uh, so you know, when you start saying like basal pore pressure and you start talking about all these, you know, like the sheer viscosity and the yeah. thing about tractions and stuff, mm-hmm. well, this is, I don't want to derail us from the, the magic, you know, black box question too much here. But what do we think the velocity profile looks like in the lower part of these flows? Hmm. Well, I can tell you what the surface profile velocity looks like (laughs) with the the camera data. But um, (laughs) so I would say that's probably at the surface. Maybe that's moving faster, so slower than what I measure at the surface. (laughs) Might be correlated to some degree. There's probably some models that um, exist that sort of infer velocity below the surface, given velocities measured at the surface. Um, so yeah, I, yeah. yeah. And I, in the, in the flows, like as they're going down the 31 degree slope, um, the profiles we think are fairly vertical actually. Hmm. Um, oh, wow. And kind of part of what informs that is, well, Dick Iverson told us he thought that was the case, but also when we're making a seismic model that like to model the, basically the seismic wave field from all the individual grain impacts, um, we found that that profile actually worked best with the data. But further down the flow, like once it starts to, um, the slope angle, you know, approaches two degrees, then I'm sure it's different. Okay. There's, There's some good papers that sort of try to, answer this question of how the velocity profile looks like. So I know there's a bunch of models out there you could look into. So I mean, would you then call it like a, like a plug flow almost in the steep yeah. section? Okay. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's surprising. Yeah, that's really cool. I wouldn't have said that at all. Yeah. I would have thought there'd be a lot more mixing between the layers. And so Kate, I mean, that's what, more uh, the, that's more the like main flow front, I, I guess I would say. Yeah. So, and there, you know, there are, particle like the the grains are getting agitated and moved around continuously but it's just when we're trying to model the entire average flow profile that's kind of what worked best okay so when the paper that we wrote uh kate and machi and i wrote we we used a model that assumed that the sediment underwent some shearing and basal slipping um so but i think that was that was on the naturalist experiment. Yeah. So what? What is, is it? More plug light towards the top? No, I mean in the the main flow when it's a debris flow. Oh, like, like after it's already initiated and kind of. Yeah, okay. and it is more. It is even more plug like before it starts to develop structure, but. Um, but yeah, I, I shouldn't say too much because I'm a seismologist and that's not my specialty. But, um, <laughs> but that's kind of that's kind of what I know about. It. So, so Kate, we've got uh, smart rocks and uh, let's see, basal pore pressure, perm viscosity. Uh, what do you want from your your magic instruments that you're going to be able to deploy along the flume? So I want to know what the basal tractions are everywhere um okay and i want to be able to measure that on different spatial scales um because currently there's uh, in the main part of the the flume there are three force plates and they have a fixed size and they only give one measurement and that's kind of what that the average of all the different particles reacting with it are um and so so basically the if you change the size of the force plate you get different measurements you know, and but it's the basal forces that generate the seismic waves, and so I want to understand how those vary in space and time and on different scales. Um, and then, in addition to that, I want to know the entire shape of the flow surface at all times, and also kind of the the grain size distribution at all times. So, all that would be nice. That's all. I, that's all I want. <laughs> nice. That's all you want. Okay. That's it. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> I, I'm still like back on these smart rocks and all I can think of, which is 
the title that I put for this show <laughs> is from Twister when they couldn't get their little sensors up in the tornado and they had to figure out a new way to do it. That's, that's I'm just going to, I'm going to get some rocks and we're going to put some Pepsi cans on them and then that'll, <laughs> that'll keep them in the flow. <laughs> so that's all I can think about right now is oh. how we're going to design these shapes of these smart rocks. <laughs> I'm very excited for the discussion of, uh, show titles after the uh, show because yeah, I've got yeah. about a half a dozen written down already. So. <laughs> <laughs> that's excellent. All right. Well, I think that's uh that covers most of the the big the big questions that I had, but what are the things that we're not asking that are really interesting that you want people to know about the work that you do? <laughs> we're not that good guys. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I don't know. Maybe we are that good. Yeah, you're the professional. Uh, they're really good questions. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, John had all these scientific questions. I just wanted to know: Are you making bets? And have you ridden down it on a bicycle before? <laughs> so, so, all right then. Well, I guess uh, the the final question that we like to to ask folks. Uh, other than if you could have a magic instrument, which we, we just covered, <laughs> is uh, how would you like to be found on the internet? How can folks keep up with what you're doing and find out what the latest and greatest in your scientific world is? Um, well, I think for USGS, we get these. Are you talking about uh, uh, social media presence? Uh, yeah, so it could be you know website or Twitter or uh some folks, you know, say even just email us. Well, how would you prefer folks uh, find out about what you're doing? Uh, well, I think email is the best, but we, uh, as a UHGS employees, we have uh, these uh, lovely profiles that anybody can look up and it usually lists uh, all our interests and most recent publications. I think we Great. need to get like a live uh, webcam. Like, you know, I spend a lot of time watching the bears in Alaska eat fish. <laughs> I'd love to, <laughs> to just watch the flume. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, well, so we have this, we have this video archive. Uh, it's publicly yes. available. All the experiments from 90, 92 until 2017. I haven't updated with the most recent videos, but uh, it's kind of, it's fascinating to see the evolution of it. And, you know, you start with these VHF videos. <laughs> They've obviously been digitized to uh, 4K videos. So it's, if you want to back, watch all of them back to back, the transition in resolution is pretty remarkable. That's excellent. You can see the progression of technology. <laughs> right. That's excellent. Though it would be cool to have a webcam fixed on the flume now. You might actually see bears doing something. <laughs> 99% of the time it would just be like empty, but yeah. <laughs> it could be interesting animal activity. Exactly. You don't know what goes on at night in the flume. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And uh, Thomas and Kate, how would you prefer folks uh, contact or keep up with your work? Uh, for me, it's the same email and the USGS web pages. Um, I don't really, I don't do social media, but USGS does have, uh, we do have a Twitter account and they'll, there's often tweets and I think Facebook may do this too. Obviously, I'm not a social media person, but they, they send out a lot of interesting uh, like <laughs> announcements about research um, from different different groups. I think there's one specific to natural hazards. I can get you that information if you want. All right, excellent. We'll link all that in. And Thomas? Yeah, for me, email is definitely best right now. Uh, don't have any websites, so... Yeah. Email's great. All right. We'll put all of that information in the show notes and just wanted to say thank you all for taking the time to join us and talk about this. It's been really fascinating to it's learn been about your great. work. Yeah, thank you for having us. Yeah, no, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Well, Shannon, are you ready to start uh, playing with flumes and going and pouring large concrete structures on? Well, you don't have any hills near you, so. Oh, I'm, I'm going to make one. Like, our flume is inadequate now, and I feel very ashamed of it. <laughs> right. I need 24 meters of run out to make some said structures. <laughs> you know, we've got smart rocks to start working on here now. Oh, and... I know. I've got all kinds of notes about the smart rocks. I'm real stoked for that. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I'm also stoked to talk about our fun paper today. 
Yeah, so it's time for Fun Paper Friday. Yay! Which is sort of fun paper. It's it's an Ig Nobel recipient. It is. And so I didn't want, you know, to go too far away from 2020 without acknowledging the <laughs> the addition to scientific personal protective equipment with this invention. The EB bra. <laughs> so I'm sure everyone's seen the memes of, you know, people putting bras over their face as face masks, but this bra actually converts to a face mask. In fact, it with converts the, to two face masks. With the slogan, <laughs> one bra, two masks, be safe, be sexy on the homepage. <laughs> I mean, it's it's real classy. Um, and also, so not to just say, okay, well, whatever, that's no big deal. Um, you can also get this bra that is two respiratory face masks with a radiation sensor in it. <laughs> Yes, you can. <laughs> it's not a joke. <laughs> you can also send in your bra and get a radiation sensor. <laughs> Though this was developed by Dr. Elena Bodnar, uh, who has done a lot of work in all kinds of trauma programs, collaborated with the WHO and Atomic Energy. Uh, agency on all kinds of hazard mitigation projects. So this was designed by someone who has a history of dealing with hazard mitigation, uh, starting with Chernobyl and now going up to uh, this filtration. And she said that this was inspired partially uh, by uh, September 11th victims using shirts and other things to filter out uh, debris that she thought, well, this emergency bra could be a real thing. And it was patented in 2009. Yeah. So that's, I was just going to say, this is not the 2020. Um, it was a 2009 Ig Nobel public health prize winner. So like, I wonder when she saw all these memes, she was like, yeah, I already did that. Right. <laughs> like, that's amazing. But I mean, she's got a real good point, right? Like um, when you're in these, trauma situations or anything like that, if you're going to be prepared all the time, every woman practically is wearing one. So actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And we see a lot of other clothing or accessories that are designed, you know, the, the paracord bracelets and all this other mm -hmm. stuff that people wear or carry with them. You know, everyday carry is a huge thing now. Uh, yeah. So it, it makes sense to always wear. be prepared for an emergency. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I love it. Obviously, we're going to link this in the show notes. And um, I love that you can send your own in and get altered. That's really great. So. Yeah, there you go. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Yeah. So if you've got your own life-saving piece of clothing that you can't live without, or any details on what sensors you would add to your emergency bra, Shannon, how can folks send that in? <laughs> uh, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. You can find us on Twitter. I'm at Shannon Doolin. John is at geo underscore Lehman. Together, we're at don'tpanicgeo. Um, you can also put your prototypes into the Slack chat room. Definitely people in there that can make them. Uh, so you can do that on the Don't Panic channel of the Software Underground. As always, thank you to our Patreon supporters for helping us make this possible. So shows like this are from your direct donations. If you would like to support us, you can do so. Patreon.com slash don't panic geo. And even though the staff electrician thinks I'll give them a hot mic this week, every time we say it until next week, remember don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.